Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and all kinds of big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And if you're new to the program, I'm really grateful to see that that we do have a lot of new listeners. And if you're digging what we do, it would mean a ton if you could go ahead and follow us, subscribe, and then rate us and leave a review, hopefully a good one. We actually had a three-star one, and and um, I don't know. I just I hate getting bad grades, but <laughs> I do like constructive feedback. But I I um I want to do better. So if you leave us a two a two-star or three-star, let me know how we can do better and earn your five-star review. <laughs> and, but seriously, it really does help us in all kinds of ways, and mostly helps me to continue having the conversations like the one we're having today with Reed Howard. Reed Howard is the Senior Director of Communications at the Millennial Action Project, which activates young leaders to bridge the partisan divide and transform American politics. Reed is a strategist and practitioner at the intersection of democracy reform, cross-partisan politics, and faith, who's advised the nation's leading nonprofits, political organizations, and public figures on how to engage America's young people across the political spectrum. Reed led communications at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He worked with Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign on how to reach Republican voters. He's a member of the American Enterprise Institute's Millennial Leadership Network, the Board of Directors for Republican Women for Progress, and the Senior Leadership Team of Principals First. He served as a minister at Central United Methodist Church in downtown Atlanta and currently serves as a chaplain in residence at Georgetown. And he did all of this at the ripe old age of, uh, I mean, I don't know ex- your exact age, but clearly you're 112 years old to have done all of this. <laughs> how, seriously, Reed, how you doing, man? Thanks for so much for coming in. I'm doing well. It's so good to finally be talking with you. Yeah, I've heard such great things about you and I've heard some of your interviews and, you know, I'm a big fan of your work, obviously. So um, yeah, I'm glad we were, we're sitting down. So Hopefully we'll be doing this in person sooner rather than later. I like it. So I, I wanted to start with a little bit of your educational background. I saw that you got your degree from Georgetown in culture and politics, but then you decided to get your MDiv with a focus on ethics and leadership. I was curious what prompted you to go in that direction after undergrad. Yeah, so I was always interested in politics and the way that systems of power operated. And so that's what I focused on at Georgetown and really kind of began to look at the way that cultural norms impact our politics and the way that partisanship was really shaping up. Donald Trump was not yet the nominee when I started to get into politics in college. He became the nominee my junior year. And so that really shaped the way that I thought about my political studies and what I wanted to do as a career. So I was interning on Capitol Hill uh, my senior year of college. And when Donald Trump won the presidency and he took over, I realized that I did not want to work on Capitol Hill immediately after graduation. It felt like there was no Republicans, which is the party that I was a part of. Uh, There were no Republicans that I thought would stand up to Donald Trump, at least Republicans at the federal level. So I went and worked in local politics for my state senator that I had known kind of growing up. And you know, a couple of years into doing that, about a year and a half, I realized that even at that level of politics, there was something that was going on in the party that I just wasn't comfortable being a part of. And so I decided to go to divinity school to study why evangelical voters were so drawn to Donald Trump. It's something that I just didn't understand. And I wanted to know 
in a much more significant and deeper way. At that same time, I was also discerning my own call to ministry. And I thought that it would kind of, it was a great time for me to go to seminary, to get to be with other believers, strengthen my own thoughts, get challenged in some interesting ways, um, both for my own personal religious walk and as well as my understanding of these larger political and religious forces that were changing in our society. Okay. So I have like pages and pages of questions, but I don't think I'm ever going to get to them because now I have like a gazillion <laughs> questions from what you just said. Um, so, okay. So how early did you identify as a Republican? Because you, you said, so Trump was coming onto the scene when you were first getting to college, I guess. And then you were already having uh, second thoughts. You were already starting to rethink yeah. your, not necessarily, it, I didn't hear you say you were rethinking your political philosophy, but the party that was housing your political philosophy historically. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is one of the most conservative cities in the country. Uh, it's home to the Norfolk Naval Base, which is the largest concentration of military folks in one area in the United States. And so grew up with those conservative values, began volunteering on Republican campaigns when I was in the eighth grade. And when I was in college, really kind of took on that conservative political philosophy into my studies. And so wanted to be a part of principled conservatism, of limited government, of kind of embracing the vision of our country that our our founding fathers laid out in our founding documents. And then I realized that what was happening with my own kind of conservative ideology was not consistent with what I was seeing Republican voters choose in the 2016 um, Republican primary. And that was really confusing. And I think that's a shift that because I was so young in my own political identity making, I was able to kind of discern a lot more than maybe some people who were more entrenched in politics, who had more to lose by um, rejecting what the Republican Party was becoming. And, you know, afterwards, not to jump too far ahead, but working with the Biden campaign and seeing groups like Republican voters against Trump and the Lincoln Project, it made a lot of sense to me why voters would remain conservative in their beliefs, but vote for Democrats because a Republican nominee wasn't supporting conservative principles. It's interesting because I hear echoes with my experience first going to church in my late 20s. I grew up observant, Emily might have told you, but I grew up in a very observant Jewish family and uh, we went to an Orthodox synagogue, but in my late 20s, I became a Christian. Yeah. And I was most compelled by Jesus. <laughs> Not, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of joking about it, but seriously, like I, I was a theolo philosophical theological nerd. So I read a lot of theology, a lot of apologetics, a lot mm -hmm. of material before I ever even got to the New Testament. And then when I got to the New Testament, the theology of Jesus, how he was engaging with Deuteronomy, how he was engaging with some other aspects of, of Hebrew Bible. Um, even literally on the cross, he was he was uh, doing a, a call out to to a really powerful psalm. And if you knew the psalm, you knew what was the end of the psalm, the, that, that it was a victory psalm. But yeah. but but that stuff was not the pr of primary concern to a lot of people I was going to church with. What was so was what was so powerfully communicative to me theologically on a soul level, on an intellectual level, or as, you know, as one of the greatest prayers, if not the greatest prayer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was hitting me on all of those dimensions, right? Mm -hmm. But those were not the most prominent characteristics that I observed or what was the most important things on a day-to-day -day basis, on a practical basis in the Christian communities that I was becoming a part of. So I, it's a long way around the barn of, of trying to draw some comparison to you arriving at certain political, philosophical moorings that weren't consistent with what you were actually seeing in the party that, that you identified with. So is, are, is that making any sense or am I just completely far afield from what your experience was? Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I, I understand that there's there's different entry points that bring people to conclusions about important things in their life. 
in this day and age, in 2022, there is this really kind of dangerous um, conflating religion and politics. People's identities are kind of subsumed by these two things. And I think what we see is oftentimes people will make politics their religion. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. And so I always try to be really careful when I'm separating my own kind of religious development and my own religious kind of vocation with what I talk about with my political identity and my political calling, because you know, it really is important that we create systems of greater justice in the world, that the work that you and I do in our daily lives through our own kind of work is making a difference in the world, but also the work that we do in our religious and spiritual lives is making an impact as well. And I think it's important to think of those things separately and not just as a combined entity. Even though we're made up of these multitudes, I'm really trying to encourage people to think of their politics as separate from their religious identity and their expression, because I think we risk making politics our God. And the idea that our politics can save us, which is something I would encourage people to think differently about. Yeah. No, and I think that's totally fair. I think that I do keep them separate, but it would be fair to say that my political leanings are informed by my theological convictions. Mm-hmm. So that's how I keep them separate. And I'm often, when I learn new things, when I dive deeper into the Bible, because that's what I hold um, dearly as as authoritative for me. Uh, I know yeah. we're in a pluralistic society, so I don't want to impose yeah. that on anybody else. But just for me, it's it's a good starting point. And as I dive deeper and learn more about it, I arrive also at convict political convictions or um, epiphanies, if you will, like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. This helps me think a little bit more clearly about a specific policy. Um, so they're two separate things. But I think to your point, I think that we do make an idol out of our politics because more often than not, we have an a priori position, or this is what I've observed is, you know, in folks that I go to church with, we have this a priori preference, political, social preference, and then we back shards of scripture into it because we know that, well, we got to vote Republican or we got to, you know, this guy's our guy or this policy is our policy without, without really thinking contextually about the scripture without thinking seriously about the scripture we just make scripture say what we want it to say it is an idolatry of sorts but it it leads me to to a specific question that i did want to dive into with you a little bit you had mentioned that your grad school thesis uh, was on why white evangelicals were so drawn toward donald trump so why do you think in doing that research and now several years later why have you observed this general shift of this whole block of voters toward a more populist authoritarian, these trends today? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to observe the political behavior of a certain group of people. And when I kind of segmented out evangelical voters, there was some really surprising results. So 81% of white evangelical voters voted for Donald Trump in 2016 in the general election. And that number is significant because that's higher than any other than the evangelical vote for any other previous Republican president. And I didn't understand how somebody could vote for Donald Trump, who was known for how many mistresses he had and how kind of inconsistent his personal behavior was with Christian orthodoxy. And part of the reason that part of what I did in my research was I came upon this study, this 2016 collaborative multiracial post-election survey is what it was called. It was put on by a group of UCLA um, political scientists, and they looked at the way that different evangelical racial groups voted in 2016. So they split apart Asian American, Latino, Black, and white um, evangelicals. And what they found is that there were often very stark differences between white and non-white evangelicals. So while the term, so what I encourage people to do is think about the term evangelical voter 
which is a, used frequently by media outlets and news publications to talk about the results of an election, I think that is not a very accurate term. It's much more accurate to talk about white evangelical voters because their positions are so much different than evangelicals with an ethnic background. So there's a lot of similarity on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage across racial lines. But for example, this survey found that whites were seven times more likely to oppose redistributive tax policy uh, on issues like healthcare than non-white evangelicals. And so it really breaks down across racial lines. And so there, there was something there that I really wanted to explore and wanted to study. And I think that knowing the ways that race intersects with religion is important to figuring out why our politics is the way it is today. Yeah. The other part of that question is how do we, a lot of your other work, it has been focused on how do we cross those lines? How do we, or, you know, those, those dividing lines, if you will, because a lot of it is about identity, it seems to me, and maybe this is an unacademic or um, I'm not finding the right vocabulary for it, but it does seem to me that folks, folks do start to separate out um, and, and get into the us versus them type of mentality. How do we, you know, rubber meets the road. How do we cross those, those dividing lines and break down some of these uh, divisions based on illusions of how we think about them, those other people. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, it does. You know, I think there's a lot of different ways that we need to approach this problem. So one, there's the community problem. There's the fact that our communities are hollowing out where we don't know our neighbors and we don't know how to make conversation with our neighbors. But then there's also kind of a top-down approach where our leaders are kind of the people we listen to on the news or watch on television or the leaders in our church groups that speak from our pews are kind of sharing one type of message that radicalizes us. And then there's another part to this problem, which is technology and the way that we interact with one another nowadays online and through social media that's really kind of creating these eco chambers that can quickly radicalize us. So, you know, the uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach that problem. Um, some of the work that I do as a chaplain, as a residential minister, is kind of working with individuals and on the individual level, but then the work that I do through the Millennial Action Project and through some of the research that I've done is on these system changes. And so what I'm really interested in doing, and and my kind of specialty is focused on how elite level actors are influencing the broader discourse. And what's fascinating is that there's this political scientist, Ted Yellen, and Professor Martha Chandler. And what they, they created this study in 1996 called the Patterns of Religious Socialization. And they looked at the ways that religious kind of congregants, people who sat in pews on Sunday morning were influenced by their fellow congregants. So the other people that were kind of their fellow believers versus the way that they were influenced by their pastors and by kind of prominent Christian authors or other things like that. And what what this the scientists found is that on almost every indicator, on almost every issue that they looked at, this idea of religious associationalism. So this uh, was stronger. So the idea that what your pastor tells you is much more likely to influence your behavior than what your fellow believers tell you. And I think this suggests that like our social social issues, the way we vote on things like abortion or same-sex marriage, they're much more influenced by elite level communications, people telling us how to think and how to feel than they are by our fellow neighbors. Now, this was particularly related to religion and it's been kind of tested over time. But as you and I were talking about just a moment ago is now people are treating politics as a religion. And I think it's really interesting if you expand this, these findings to what's happening in the religious space, 
where you have people like on Fox News, for mm. example, who are yeah. telling people that the election was stolen. And I think, you know, the the trust in our democratic institutions has declined precipitously since Donald Trump started to make that a huge point of contention. People are now, it's he has part of, he has made the issue partisan in a way that's influenced a lot of his followers. And so I think to answer your question, part of how we solve it is by reversing these trends among some of these elite level actors like mm. Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, because that's they're a huge factor of how the rest of the country thinks. It's interesting because as you were sharing about the 1996 survey, survey, I was wondering if they did that survey today, if they'd come to the conclusion that someone like Pastor Tim Keller came to, and Dr. Russell Moore has talked about this, David French has talked about this, where uh, Tim Keller said that people sit in my church for a, an hour a week, and maybe they yeah. come to a Wednesday Bible study or something like that, yeah. but but Sean Hannity and Tucker got them you know, 10, 20 hours a week. I can't compete with that. So I wonder if the folks who did that study and came to the conclusion that it was about associationalism, I think I got that word right. Yeah. I like that word. It's a new word. My brother's going to be proud of me because I have to do away with some of my other words that are go-tos for me. So anyway, (laughs) but uh, I wonder if they'd come to different conclusions if they did that circa 2022. Uh, But I, I, I wanted to get to something that you've already alluded to. Sure. And you've also done a lot of work. Uh, from what I understand, when you were at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, yeah. uh, you ran comm strategy for their nationwide ba- is it battleground civility poll. Mm-hmm. That's I right. Like that okay, that's yeah. you're, you're you're right in our neighborhood right here. So, um, curious what you learned about civility and voters' attitudes towards civility from doing that poll. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to know how this poll is put together. So. Uh, it's put together by a Republican and a Democratic polling firm. These are legendary pollsters who've been around. So the Republican at GOAS was the consultant for George W. Bush and, and works to this day with several Republican parties across the country. And then the Democrat is Celinda Lake, who's the pollster for folks like President Biden and AOC and a lot of progressive candidates. And so they come together to kind of look at the survey of Americans and bring their own expertise at reaching a particular type of the American electorate. And then they combine those results. And so one of the things that we that we did uh, when I was at the Georgetown Institute of Politics was looked at how voters think about civility and really track that shift over time. And so one of the questions we always asked was on a scale of zero to 100, with zero being there's no division at all, and 100 being we're at the edge of civil war, we asked respondents to tell us where they thought the country was. And so just last month in July of 2022, um, the mean score was 71. Wow. So that means people think we're closer to civil war than not. And that's really scary. We, you know, when you look at um, a majority of people say that all or most of their friends share the same political beliefs. So 60% of the country says that their friends share the same political beliefs. And only 38% say that there are, they have some friends who do. So there's this huge gap in how we're connecting with one another. And I think when you look at the ways that people think on civility, it really is an indicator of why politicians are acting the way that that they are. And so there's a little bit of a chicken and egg. Do we need to influence the people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump and get better better leaders on the stage that are setting a better example? Or do we need to respond to the way that people, uh, do we need to change the way that people are asking their politicians to behave? And I think that's where um, those of us who really believe in the value of civil dialogue and of discourse, we really need to lean in and, and influence our communities and talk to our neighbors and practice those kind of attitudes of good conversation and being a good neighbor to influence it 
as well, influence on our nation's outcomes as well. But that's a set of skills, um, and for for a lot of us, are, are a set of muscles that are we either don't have or have atrophied, uh, and have been replaced by more combative uh, set of tools, if you will. Yeah. So, what are some of the ways that you encourage folks to start equipping themselves and and learning or relearning those things that we learned in nursery school about <laughs> you know how to share, how to be kind to your neighbor. You know, the, the, all the things I learned, I learned in kindergarten kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that um, we have found is if you, cre- if you create an intentional space for folks to come together and have difficult conversations, people will often reward you by taking that space seriously and digging in to do that work. And so in my current role at the Millennial Action Project, one of the things that we do is we bring young Americans together to have these cross-partisan conversations. So we work with, our members are elected officials. They're people who either serve in Congress and are under the age of 45, or they serve in state houses as like your state senator or your state representative, and they're part of the millennial or Gen Z generations. And so we found that there's, there are very few spaces for those folks to have conversations across the aisle. People are leaving town right after they vote to go do things in their district, or um, they're ostracized for just having social drinks with someone else if it's unprogrammed or not organized. And so what we did is we were like, we're going to create an intentional space for young people to connect on their generational identity that will bring them together across the aisle. And um, that has gone over really well. We've set terms of the conversation so people know what we are going to talk about and what we're not going to talk about. And for the most part, those are self-reinforcing. And so kind of creating those community guidelines is really helpful to the flow of that conversation as well. And then the, the last thing is there's something really powerful about starting off by identifying shared values and shared commitments to one another. And so when you find something that a group of people have in common, um, maybe it has nothing to do with politics, but has something to do with, like my organization does about age, the fact that we are all going to be here in 70 years. And so we want to legislate in a way that creates a world that we will inherit. We found that even having that common identity really helps set the tone for a civil dialogue. How do you, in those situations, assure, in so many different environments, what I refer to as the screamers or the extremists tend to take all the oxygen out of the room. So how are you able to set up some healthy boundaries uh, so that a lot of the folks, again, something that David French has referred to a number of times, the exhausted majority, um, I think of them as a silenced majority, whether it's in small spaces like our Thanksgiving table or in larger spaces like, uh, you know, arenas or, or you know, church services, you know, if these conversations come up, it's the screamer who tends to dominate the entire conversation and other folks just check out. How do you assure it, um, the circumstances that allow for the folks to, to number one, encourage the exhausted majority to speak up and allow for the silenced majority to have some space to speak? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different things going on with what you're calling the screamers, because, you know, I, I think oftentimes there's a reason why people feel unheard. And I think acknowledging that there's issues that they feel really passionate about that need to be addressed, I think can help people want to know that they're being listened to. And I think that can help calm nerves. So it's a lot about tone setting. So sometimes you need to give people the space to do that work. The other thing is this type of conversation is never effective if it's a one-off. And Mm. so you have to set up some type of sustained dialogue over time. That's why town halls are so ineffective when you see congressmen try to do it. And people take the microphone and they yell. It's because they feel like that's the only Only time time. they're going to be able to get the ear of their elected official. Yeah. Um, And so when you're doing something like if you're in a church, 
and your church is having really difficult conversations about racial reconciliation. And you know that you're going to have these conversations over the course of a six or eight week period. You know you're going to face these people again and be in closer dialogue with them. You're going to be much more likely to kind of change and soften the way that you say things. And I think that idea of having repeated exposure to these conversations over time can really help prime the initial conversation with a sense of civility. Now, the other thing is, is people will blow up. That's what happens when you have difficult conversations. And then what you go back to is your agreed upon community guidelines for those conversations. So in those community guidelines, which should be set by some type of facilitator or moderator who's trained to have those conversations, you'll have an agreed upon community response. And it's that Everybody that's in that dialogue will have said, I'm okay with this. So when they violate certain norms or guides that you've set, they know what their consequences are going to be to begin with. So it's all about setting up those conversations to be successful in the first place. Yeah, I, I was kind of joking. A friend of mine is running for uh, the town council, the city council here in my valley. Yeah. And uh, I... There, there were some heated, you know, board of ed meetings. Uh, there were some heated town city uh, council meetings. Mm-hmm. I thought if I ever ran for that seat, my, my, um, my campaign message would be: you get your two minutes, then sit down, shut up, or get the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that'd be very effective campaign strategy wise. So. You know, the nastiest politics is always practiced in like an HOA. I love, the, <laughs> I love the. The more local it gets, like the more personal it gets, because you know people in that community. Oh man, that would be like the next office type or parks and rec type. Of, like, <laughs> that would be awesome to just like start tracking with some of those stories. <laughs> I'm here for the next Netflix special that comes out about like Henry Kissinger's post-retirement life as the president of an HOA. I think that's great. He figured out China relations with China. He can't figure out, you know, you know, the covered bridge HOA. <laughs> um, so I want to go back to a little bit about your own. Oh, by the way, since we're talking about it, I do need to give a shout out to my pals at Village Square. They yeah. have been doing exactly what you're talking about. Liz started it. I can't remember the exact year. I want to say like t- 2006 or so. And she's been at it. And now Ver- Vanessa Rouse t- took over the um, the Florida uh, chapter and Liz is going national and they're, they're setting they're They're so creative in how they do this. Sometimes they'll bring in a really great speaker and have a Q and a afterwards. Uh, one time they, they just um, shut off a part of the downtown and set up literally like a hundred coffee tables. And it was like, uh, you set up a Republican and a Democrat and you, you sort of force people to have civil conversations as neighbors about all these issues. I just, I love what they're doing. I'm a big fan of their organization. Yeah. Uh, so I'm encouraged by stuff that you're doing. I'm encouraged by stuff that they're doing. Go ahead. Sorry. But what I would say about that is that it has to be sustained, sustained. over time with yeah. like that same group of people over time, having those conversations, one-off dialogues yeah. really never work. And they're, they're kind of a waste of time. And that's something, and I, I'm not familiar with the organization that you just mentioned, but that's what I would encourage people to do is like, if you kind of want to shift the course of the dialogue in your community, or you have a group of people like members of your own family that have problems when they get together for Thanksgiving, like you need to see this as a long-term commitment and not just a one-off conversation because what, unfortunately, the point where we're at in the civil discourse of our country is that we need real behavior modification. And that only comes with um, repetition. Yeah. Behavior modification. I feel like we're like, I got to bring in the dog trainer, you know, the dog whisperer. behavior modification um right. for for our you know civics and uh you know civil discourse <laughs> yeah you get a treat if you can survive thanksgiving <laughs> dinner without flinging mashed potatoes at your differently voting relative that's what we do in my family i gotta be honest flinging mashed potatoes okay at least you know no you'll get too hurt you might ruin your dress but like that's awesome. all right i got a tough question for you Sure. I heard you say as recently as 
the spring of last year, you might've said it since then, yeah. that you are not a believer in the viability of a major third party. <laughs> How do you feel about that now? Are you, do you still feel that way? I still feel that way. Really? And I feel very strongly that we should not have third party efforts, that they should be abandoned. Why is that? So here's the thing. So I am an independent. I don't kind of identify with the Republican Party and um, I'm not quite a Democrat. And so this idea of joining a moderate or centrist third party should really appeal to someone like me. But in our country, that is never going to work. And a third, there's so many structural issues that are set up to make it so that a third party doesn't happen. So we there's fixes like jungle primaries and ranked choice voting and nonpartisan redistricting and all of these efforts that should be in place before third parties are attempted. But even when those fixes are put in place, the systems largely fail to elect moderate legislators. And so I'm not even sure that this time, like third parties are not winning in these districts. It's really interesting because right now in Utah, there's this fascinating Senate race going on Evan with McMullen, Evan McMullen right? running against Mike Lee. And like, I am all on board to support Evan McMullen and really excited to see how that race shakes out. But he's not running under a third party banner. He was, his team was really smart in realizing that they needed to get the support of the state Democratic Party. And oh. so the the Utah Democrats endorsed McMullen instead of endorsing their own candidate. And that is huge. That's the only way someone like him will win, off, an independent will win office, is if they have the support of one of the two major parties. And so I just think this idea of taking on the duopoly by forming another party is kind of Pollyanna-ish and is ultimately hurts the cause of moderates. Yeah. So I believe that what we should do is really invest in factions within parties. You can't, politics is hard work. It's hard work to mobilize voters and to get them to go to the polls. It's why you don't see a lot of people vote in primaries, and it's why the most extreme segment of the electorate votes in primaries, because it's the people really fired up. And all the people who are kind of have a more moderate disposition don't vote and wait until the general election. It's because it is difficult to mobilize voters. And what I think of third party efforts is they're trying to invest in all of these quick fix solutions. Whereas what we really need to do is people like me who are maybe on the center right, who are offended by what Donald Trump is doing to deny the election. What we have to do is the hard work of reaching voters and getting them to turn out in primaries to vote against these election deniers and we've never seen the mobilization, the well-financed mobilization of moderate voters in either party, like stretching back to Rockefeller. And so we a factional future. There's this great art, there's this great article written by these two political scientists, um, Robert Salden and Steve Tellis. It's called Our Future is Faction. And they go into all this all of this in great detail if you're interested in the political science behind this. But that's why I think the way I do about third parties. Fair enough. Uh, so you're, I, I think you've collaborated with Miles Taylor in the past. So Miles yeah. and and my one of my favorite governors, Christy Whitman yes. from my home state of New Jersey and uh, Andrew Yang, the Yang. So they haven't uh, persuaded you. They haven't uh, given you second thoughts about the viability. Well, I will say this. Man, over a year ago now, a group of us got together for this thing called the Contract for American Renewal, which is what created the Renew America movement, um, okay. the organization that Miles leads. And so yeah. it was probably a group of 40 to 60 folks, and we had a day-long conference. 
And we talked that were, and all of us were on the center right. So Michael Steele was a part of this conversation. Governor Christine Todd Whitman, Bill Crystal, Evan McMullen, Mindy Finn. Um, I was one of the youngest people there. And I was one of the youngest people to sign the contract for American Renewal that came out of it. And what we said is that we were going to look at our options, whether we should form a faction within the Republican Party to try to pull it towards the center, whether we should form an independent party, um, or whether we should take a couple of other actions. But what we knew is that we needed to create some type of organized movement where we could mobilize voters to push back against some of these election deniers, because we knew that these lies were atrophying our democracy. And I don't agree with the decision to start a third party as a way of pushing back against the extremes in our system. And here's why. I think it's really important that we have our voters engage in system maintenance of maintaining our democracy. And the way that this has always been done in countries throughout our history is through political parties. So center-right parties have always been a really important bulwark against extremists. And what we saw in 2016 is that the leaders of the center-right Republican Party pretty much went silent and did not oppose Donald Trump as much as they could have. Paul Ryan was very kind of mum when it came to the 2016 general election. He spoke out once about the Muslim ban and then really went silent again. Mitt Romney was really the only significant figure who, in the Republican Party who called Donald Trump a phony. And I think had our leaders stepped up and really marshaled the efforts of the centrist Republicans, maybe even the principled conservatives who are a little bit more further to the right, I think we could have thwarted Donald Trump, but they didn't do that. And so I still think center-right parties are really important. I'll say this, there's this great book. I'm giving, I'm giving your readers a lot of book ideas. I hope, I hope. I need you to send me links so I can put it in the show notes <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. So, so there's this great book by Daniel Zablot called Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. And what he did is he looked at pre-democratic societies. So countries that had monarch monarchies or other forms of government that transitioned to become democracies. And he tried to understand how they did it and why they didn't slide into other forms of authoritarianism. And, you know, a great example that he pulled out was Belgium and Belgium's, Belgium's political party landscape in the 1930s. And there was this kind of radical right-wing Rexist party uh, that emerged and they really kind of were a threat to democracy. Kind of, this was, you know, around the time of the rise of Nazism as well. But in Belgium, there was kind of the Catholic, the conservative Catholic party, which was their like mainstream conservative party that really kind of organized um, a strategy to exclude this radical right-wing movement from their party. And they effectively shut them out of any kind of votes in their parliament. And that helped kind of birth a democracy in Belgium. And so we, so there's examples in history over time of center-right parties kind of pushing out those extremist elements. And that's what we need in the United States today. The, the soft power of political parties to control who is able to run for office and participate in the political process as an elected official cannot be that that political power that parties have is so strong and it's so important for our development as a democracy and the fact that we had this whole segment of leaders within the republican party abandon their role is what's really harming us today it's why people like marjorie taylor green should never be embraced by the major the 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 leader in congress like kevin mccarthy should be rejecting the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the party, but he's not. And so 
take it back to something like the forward party, we don't need good conservatives to abandon the Republican party because that's actually gonna make the Republican party more liberal and more of a threat. We need those folks to stay in the fight, to convince their peers and their other party leaders to be bulwarks against this extremism. And that's, I think, the best way to fight back against the trends we're seeing. So I think I heard you say earlier that you're not bullish on the on the prescription of mechanisms such as open primaries and uh, ranked choice voting. But you are. But I do hear you lamenting the failure of leadership within the Republican Party. So are you more hopeful that there will be some leaders who step up, maybe a Ben Sass who's still in the Senate or other um, up and coming leaders who can push back against the MTGs of the world, the Lauren Bobitz of the world um, and, and open up some space, give an on ramp back on, into the party for the Liz Cheney's and the Adam Kinzinger's of, of the party? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. One, I want to take on like the ring choice voting and, okay. and those questions that you asked, because I think those are really important democratic reforms. And there's some really great organizations that are doing work to achieve some of those goals. And I support them. I do think that they're going to help us in certain types of races. I think if you look at studies that for places that have implemented ranked choice voting, it very rarely impacts elections. So the people who are already polling at first place normally win under a ranked choice voting system anyway. And so I don't think you're gonna get as significant of changes as people as democracy reformers claim, but I'm willing to admit that I could be totally wrong on that. And I, I think those the ideas of those reforms are important. When it comes to folks like Ben Sass and whether or not we can count on them to change the party. You know, I, I think we've really been let down by leaders like him, by him specifically. I think if you want to talk about Ben Sass, there was, he was caught on tape ahead of the 2020 election on October 15th. So this is about two and a half weeks before the presidential election. He is caught on tape talking to his constituents about how Trump mishandled the coronavirus response. Ben Sass said he kisses dictators' butts. He said he sells out our allies. Um, so this is what he was saying behind closed doors, and yet still voted for the guy and endorsed the guy. And so I think what we need is leaders of courage to stand up and speak out. The folks like Brad Raffensperger. Or what we heard Larry Hogan say about the governor race in, um, in Maryland, uh, that he simply would not support the current Republican candidate for governor in Maryland. Right. I don't know if he would say, say he'd endorse the Democratic candidate, but at least he was very crystal clear about not supporting. I, I, I forgot the exact words he used, but the wacko anti-democracy, you know, so folks like that, I, I you know, but that's hard. It's hard uh, because you're you're basically not just ostracized. You're I mean, you know, you're quickly basically kicked out of the party. We, we saw that time and time and time again. Yeah, you, you are. You, you are kicked out. And and that's the problem where there's. Oh, well, you, you experienced. Sorry to cut you off, but you experienced that, too, didn't you? Yeah. You raised after you raised millions of dollars for the Virginia Republican Party. Do I have that right? You were kicked mm -hmm. out of the you were essentially kicked out of the party for not uh, supporting. Was it 2016 or 2020? That, uh, um, this was in 2020. I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 either. But honestly, the party, the neither were the leaders of the Virginia Republican Party. They didn't want Donald Trump in 2016 either. But by 2020, it was even less orthodox to do that. So I kind of got in my car and drove up to Iowa to door knock for Joe Biden in the 2020 primaries because I thought he was the most centrist candidate. I was running in that race and I thought he had the best shot of defeating Donald Trump. So I went up, knocked on some doors. And I, when I got back to Richard's speech, I got a phone call from our membership chairman saying that I was kicked out. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. It is wild. Because it, 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 it means that they, the requirement of orthodoxy is a greater priority 
than having principles or even effectiveness politically. Like, like I said, I don't know exactly. I was going to ask you, how do you, how does one raise millions of dollars for a political party or a campaign or what have you? I don't even know what that looks like, but I guess it starts with knocking on doors, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some pretty sophisticated fundraising mechanisms these days. But I mean, I think I think if people want to get involved in their party, there's a couple of ways to do it. And I think one of the best ways is volunteering and just seeing how you can be helpful. And I think it's really important, like folks who are kind of center right and don't want to become Democrats and want to fight for a better Republican party from within, I think it's really important that you do that. And you should acknowledge you should notice that there's not going to be a home for you in the Republican Party at this point. And so that's why I work with this group called Principles First, which is a grassroots organization that is working to shift the conservative movement to, back to its founding principles. And so, so join an organization like that that's in your hometown where you can fight with others to push back against this and realize it is going to be a fight. Like, unfortunately, now there's some really kind of far right authoritarians who are controlling state and local parties. And we need to be really smart and tactical about how to get them out of office, how to regain control of parties. We can't think about politics as just Republican versus Democrat anymore. We have to think about it as democracy versus authoritarianism. And Honestly, that that fight is much more pronounced in the Republican Party, but there's important to organize that against that in any political party today as well. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to take advantage of this moment that I have with a professional strategist and practitioner, and I'm going to bring up a very specific situation. And I'll, I'll have a, a specific question um, when I kind of I want to fill in some color here. So to be clear. I personally support our Republican state Senator Scott Wilk. One of the reasons I do is that in California is that he is a he is a reasonable Republican who works as a minority in this state. Yeah. You know, and and he has very practical ways and pragmatic ways that he reaches across the aisle to get things done. You know, he's in the vast majority as a Republican in California, um, but he uh, he. He's not a uh, democracy denying type of of Republican. That's one of the reasons that I continue to support Scott. I support Suzette, who is our uh, state assembly member here. Um, she is uh, she's very still, you know, she's still in her first term, but she's shown to have some of the same virtues as Scott has shown throughout his career. However, yes. <laughs> this is where I want to fill in. So I don't know if you're familiar with California 27, but I'm not. No. Okay, so we're represented by a Republican named Mike Garcia. Mike Garcia okay. won in 2020 uh, by 333 votes. It was less than one tenth of one percent of the people who voted. We had about 340,000 plus uh, people who voted uh, in this district. He beat Christy Smith, who's running again in this district. So I thought that given the very purple nature of our district, and if you start to look down at the qualitative uh, information about what makes up this particular district. It was California 25, um, redistricted a little bit. Uh, now we're California 27. And um, Mike's record and virtually all of his public statements indicate that the only people he represents is the most extreme MAGA part of the Republican Party. Um, he voted, I mean, for, literally from day one, or I guess technically day two, January 6th, the evening of January 6th, he voted to overturn Pennsylvania. January 7th, he voted to overturn Arizona. Yeah. And then vote after vote after vote. And even softballs, softballs, where, where a good contingency of his own party voted in a bipartisan way. Or, or like keeping Marjorie Taylor Greene on the education committee. You know, just simple things. Like you, you weren't voting her out of Congress. You weren't voting her out of the party. You're just saying, no, a lady who stalks a high school kid who just saw you know, a couple, you know, 20 of his his friends and teachers slaughtered. You, you don't stalk him and threaten him on the streets. You yeah. don't belong in the education. Anyway, I'm, I'm on a rant right now. Tell us how you feel, Corey. Tell okay. us. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, I, I don't pretend to hide, you know, how I feel about certain things. But here's that. the thing. I'm a Christian. I'm a fiscal conservative. And I think that whether it's through something like an op-ed, I've, I've had some op-eds placed here locally um, or just in a Bible study. Um, you know, you look at a typical, you know, Sunday school class 
let's say there's, you know, 10 or 15 couples in there, 20 or 30 people in there. I don't think that I can convince the room. I don't think that I can, but I do think that in any one of those rooms, or if I put an op-ed in the local paper, I do think there's the equivalent of the Bannon line, somewhere between the one and, I, I don't know, Rick, um, uh, Rick saying that that it's as much as 12 or 14%, but even if it's like three to 5%, so one person in that room, how do I talk to a lifelong pro-life Christian about the possibility of voting for the Democrat in California 27? Yeah. Well, that is a really difficult conversation because it's intersecting people's um, multiple identities and is really core to who they are and, who, and, and what they think about life and what they think about their own faith. So we had some experience with this in 2020. Uh, my friend, Emily, who you know well, she and I formed this group called Biden Republicans. And what we wanted to do was find build permission structures for Republicans to vote for a Democrat for the first time in their life, to vote for Joe Biden. And one of the really powerful things that we did was had a conversation with pro-life women about how they were going to vote in 2020. And so these were all women who were strong, mostly because of their evangelical faith. They were strong pro-life leaders in their community. But we asked them why, how they could kind of put aside you know, everything else that comes with their background to vote for Joe Biden. We found that that conversation really resonated with people. It was really important to hear from others who shared that identity um, to shift their behavior. And so I say that to say in your situation and in your election, I think finding the messenger often matters just as much as the message does. And so finding other people to carry on that example and to have that conversation, people that voters can identify with is really the way to have that difficult yeah. conversation. Yeah. And like I said, that proverbial room of 20 or 30 Christians, I don't think you're convincing that entire room. But in no. an election like ours, where it was less than one tenth of one percent that decided yeah. to vote, if you convince one of those people in that room of 20, that that will change the course of the election. And um, to, to be fair, not to be too much of a hog for, for Christy Smith, but I, I've said this many times where she and I probably disagree three quarters of the time, if not more, on actual policy issues. But the fact is, she showed when she was in the assembly, she showed that at least she's going to represent my voice. She knew yeah. that I didn't vote for her two different, you know, uh, I, I, I introduced myself and I said, I didn't vote for you. I, you know, voted for Dante ah. or her opponent. She said, oh, that's cool. And we finished the conversation by her inviting me onto her small business committee. She wanted to know uh -oh. why I voted against her. And it wasn't just lip service. She actually worked. And again, we still disagreed on a lot, but the fact that she included me in the conversation and worked and found something that she can include in the legislation that she was supporting. So I know we're still going to disagree, but what we agree upon first and foremost is the democratic process. Yeah. Right? Whereas, whereas that, that's where the critical difference is, is that Mike showed by his vote, ironically, by his vote, that he doesn't believe in democracy. Right. So if we don't have democracy, we, we can't talk about anything else. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's my answer. Maybe that's how I have the conversation. I think that's a great way to do it. <laughs> um, I, geez, I have like, okay, six pages of notes. And because of what you were saying, you got me off into other areas that I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> but did you have any questions for me? Yeah, I did. I'm really curious to know kind of how you think about your role as a citizen in this democracy. And what you want to do to pass that on to people in your family. So my question is, what's a practice that you do as a citizen that you want to make sure is that you pass down as an ancestor to those who come after you? Well, I mean, it starts with voting, you know, in California, they make it so convenient for us to vote. Not only that, in advance of every election, even the primaries, we get information about uh, who's running and what issues are on the ballot. Yeah. So be, you know, be, be a voter. Um, and if that's all you can do, great. But if, if you could take the next step, I would say be an informed voter. So yeah. 
there's not every, I am not, I don't have deep understanding of every candidate the way that I do about Christy and Mike, or Christy Smith and Mike Garcia, the candidates for California 27. But I do have friends that I trust who I've had these deep conversations with about political philosophy and civics. Uh, so for example, I have uh, friends who are attorneys here in the area and I'm going to take my ballot and have conversations about, you know, judges that are up for election and things like that. You know, so I'm going to do I'm going to do a little bit of thoughtful research uh, or at the very least, read the voter's guide about the various propositions and try to make up uh, my mind in an informed way. So voting is is one thing. I think the other thing, too, it's a little bit less formal, but it goes to something that you were saying earlier, is that we've we've lost connective or civic connective tissue with our neighbors. So to be mindful and proactive about taking my neighbor out for coffee or taking somebody from that Bible study out for coffee and, and doing it in such a way that is proactive yet winsome, proactive yet neighborly. You know, so I'll give you an example. I went to this, um, uh, it was uh, a church, it, it was a, a guy's get together, little yeah. whiskey, little cigars. I was like, all right, you're, you're talking my language now. You, you had me at whiskey, so I'll go. So I went, had great conversations with a bunch of the guys. And uh, one guy came in and he had a shirt that said, come and take them. It was like a khaki shirt. And, you know, uh-huh. oh yeah, it's, it's an allusion to the uh, 300 or whatever, like, you know, and uh, now that I think about it, that's the guy that I should take out for coffee because yeah. I have such a uh, visceral reaction against that. I just can't take him seriously on, on its face. Like, dude, Nobody's coming to take your Tinker Toys, man. Like, <laughs> I know you want to feel like a hero in your own Rambo movie and everything, but like, it ain't a thing. So, um, but because of that, because I'm cynical about it, and because I'm kind of a Jersey asshole-ish about it, I should like find find the neighborliness in me, yeah, to um, and invite him out for coffee, and not to try to convince him that he's, you know. Looney Tunes, but but to better understand, even if I don't convince him of anything, even if I don't persuade him about anything, at least I'll be better equipped to better understand where he's coming from and why he thinks what he thinks. Yeah. You know, so those are a couple of things that. that come to mind. Yeah. I always think about it like, so one of the practices that I'd want to pass down as a citizen is this idea of being curious about who other people are. I think it's really important that particularly in our democracy and in the problems that are facing us in 2022, that we get really smart about issues of racial justice and of the way that race plays a role in our society. And the way that our kind of neighborhoods and our cities have been socially engineered over the past 50 years is that it's entirely possible that you could live in even the most diverse and pluralistic city and never go to church or grocery store or public school with people of a different race than you. It's through government policies like redlining and you know discrimination and housing policies or gentrification that's, that's really dividing our communities. And so I think we have to be really proactive about trying to reach out across not just partisan lines, but racial lines as well. And so the um, there's this great kind of quote from Brian Stevenson, who is a civil rights leader and lawyer and wrote this book called Just Mercy, which was popular a couple years ago. And he says that, you know, in order to do good justice, in order to do good work, we have to get proximate to people, the people that we care about. And that proximity will change us. It will change the way we think about one another. And so, you know, that's something that I really want to encourage kind of my ancestors to do, the people in my family that come after me to do, is to make sure that you are trying to learn about other people and and learn about them on their terms. So go and spend time in community in places that you normally wouldn't or go read books or watch TV or, or listen to podcasts that are from a completely different cultural background than the one that you're used to. And I think part of that curiosity and part of that willingness to go out there and learn about others, the way that they would 
want you to, you know, in conversation with others, learning about them, I think that's going to make for a stronger democracy. That's great. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great prescription. And uh, I appreciate that. I do. I would say qualify one part of what you said that uh, while I admire and respect folks who do look for the quote unquote, the other side is saying, I think there's a difference if we think that we're being informed, if we tune into like for me, I, I have this habit of tuning into the Wilkow majority or to uh, Hannity on the radio and getting his first opening monologue and thinking that, and in some cases it's true. It's like, I already, there's about seven friends. I know exactly what their talking points are going to be because it's almost as if they just tune in, they memorize his talking points and that's what they're going to be talking about. That yeah. But for most people, I think, there is better work. There's better thinking. There's better writing. There's more thoughtful. It's it's a little harder to find nowadays, but back in the day, you know, if you were a Democrat and you read David Brooks, if you were a Democrat and you read George Will, if you were a Democrat and you read Peggy Noonan um, or Kathleen Parker, like that, there was good thinking there, you know? Uh, yeah. But, um, but so I, I would be discerning about who you're reading to, to have, or to your point, you know, again, there's nothing like just sitting down with somebody that you disagree with something about and just really hearing them as a human being. So mm -hmm. there's definitely something to that. So I could do this forever, <laughs> Reed. Like I said, I still have pages, pages of notes to get to. But why don't we um, why don't we do this? Why don't we make sure that we do it again? And like I said, maybe we'll do it in person next time. Sounds good. So in the meantime, how can folks find more information about you, the Millennial Action Project, and all the great work that you're doing? Yeah, sure. So, um, and I want to kind of uh, clarify at the outset that I, I was speaking as myself, not as the Millennial Action sure. Project, yeah. um, particularly some of the things that I shared about around democracy reform, I think, are just my own thoughts and not my organizations. But you can find me on Twitter, um, at Reed Howard VA. That's where I do, you know, most of my pontificating these days, Corey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, and the Millennial Action Project, which is this great kind of nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that works to bridge the divides, they're at millennialaction.org. And so if you're wanna, if your listeners want to learn more about how young people are really stepping up to build a healthier democracy, I encourage them to check out Millennial Action Project. You can also follow them on social media at um, M Action Project. Um, at M Action Project yes. and at Reed Howard VA for Virginia, at Reed Howard VA and yeah. millennialaction.org. So terrific. Well, this has been a real treat, Reed. I, I've, it's been great getting to know you personally here since I've heard such great things about you. Uh, you did not disappoint. And like I said, I hope we get to do it again real soon. It was great talking to you too. See you, Corey. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please follow us, leave a review and comments. We're on Apple, Amazon, Pocket Cast, Podcast Addict, Spotify. We're even on YouTube. Or you can always find us at politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Yeah.